If you'd like to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're reading from verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is God's word. Evening, everyone. Welcome And shall we pray as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for another opportunity to have your word open. Thank you that you're a God who speaks. And we pray that this evening you would help us to understand what it means to please you, to live that way more and more as your people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a common mistake that Christians have made throughout the centuries is thinking that the way we please God is by withdrawing from the world and engaging in super spiritual acts. Nobody highlights this more clearly than Simeon Stylites, who was born around 390 AD. Simeon, he became a Christian in his uh, teenage years and was very zealous for wanting to please God. So he did the, the thing that lots of people would do at that time. He, he left and withdrew and went to a monastery so that he could devote himself to prayer and fasting and to giving up lots of things. But there was a problem. After a little while in the monastery, even the other monks were so distressed by how much Simeon was giving up and withdrawing that they kicked him out of the monastery. They said, you're just putting us to shame. You're so withdrawn from the world. So Simeon did the, the next thing, which is the, the logical next step, to, to move and live in a hut on his own, in a secluded area, and he didn't see anyone for 18 months, fasting for weeks and weeks on end. But even then, that was not enough for him. So he thought, this is too comfortable, so he withdrew to live in the rocks, in a mountainside. The problem by this point was that he was becoming something of a celebrity, a spiritual celebrity, because of all the things that he was doing in order to please God. And so he decided that he had to take the most extreme measure possible. He went and found a tall pillar. It was about 15 meters high. He climbed up this pillar. There was a little one meter by one meter platform on top of the pillar. He sat down on this one meter by one meter platform and prayed and fasted and did that for the remaining 37 years of his life. 
He thought that the way to please God was by withdrawing from the world and devoting himself to spiritual disciplines. Now, whilst that may be at the most extreme end, I think it's quite a common thing for Christians to think the way we please God is by withdrawing from the world and giving all our time to to praying and Bible reading and meditating. Of course, those things are good things. But the passage tonight will show us that Christians please God not by withdrawing from the world, but by obeying God in the everyday, ordinary things of life. Just look down at what Paul writes in verse 1 to this church at Thessalonica. He says, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This is a section in 1 Thessalonians where Paul is talking about how we can please God more and more. Now, before we just jump in, it's really important that we have a distinction in mind in our heads. Otherwise, we're going to get very confused. The distinction is between relating to God as our judge or trying to relate to God as our father. See, if we're trying to relate to God as our judge, that is wanting to walk into the heavenly courtroom on judgment day and have God look at our life and say, you've done brilliantly. You're welcome into heaven because you are so amazing. If we're trying to please God in that sense as a judge, the Bible says all our attempts to please him like that are futile. Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 64 says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. If we're trying to please God as our judge in the heavenly courtroom to get into heaven, the Bible says we're never going to please him. The only verdict we can get from God is guilty. But everything changes if we're relating to God as our father. The Bible says those who've trusted Jesus, who've put their hope in him and his perfect, flawless obedience and sacrificial death in our place, they're adopted into God's family. And at that point, we call God our father. And in the same way that the best human fathers delight in and are pleased by even the the imperfect, stuttering obedience of their children, in the same way, God, our heavenly father, is pleased by the often imperfect and stuttering yet real obedience of his children. 1 Peter 2 says, our works are acceptable to God in Christ Jesus. God's children are able to please him. And as we've worked through this letter, Paul has already labored the point that this church is a real, genuine church full of believers who relate to God as their father. And in the verses we're going to think about this evening, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, we're going to see two areas of life that this church, who are already relating to God as father and pleasing him, can do so more and more. The two areas of life are sex and work. So verses 3 to 8, we'll see holy sex. And in verses 9 to 12, we'll see loving work. And we'll see how in these two areas, those who relate to God as father can please him more and more. So let's dive in and have a look at verses 3 to 8 and see the first area where we can please God, which is the area of sex. Let's have a look at these verses together. Verse 3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit." 
You'll notice in these verses, the key word that we have to think about is the word holy, because it comes up four times. One of them is a bit masked by the, the English translation. When it says sanctified, that's just another word for being made holy. So you see holy comes up, verse 3, you should be sanctified, made holy. Verse 4, control your own body in a way that's holy. Verse 7, God called us to live a holy life. Verse 8, God gives us his Holy Spirit. That's why I've said these verses are about holy sex. But the word holy is not a word we use very often. You probably only really use it in church. And it's a word that can often get lost as a piece of Christian jargon, which we're not sure what it means. So what does holy mean? Well, holy is difference or separateness or set-apartness. In Isaiah 6, you, you see the angels around the, the heavenly throne room, and they, they, they have their, their, their faces covered, and they're crying out to God, holy, holy, holy. And what they're saying is God is different. God is separate. He's set apart. He's not like us. He is worthy of our worship. He's in a different category. Some people talk about God's holiness being his godness, the thing that makes him God. He is different from us. God is holy. He is set apart. And he shares his holiness with his people. And so his people, Christians, we are to be different. We are to be holy. As we think about holiness a bit more, let me try and make it clear with a, a silly example. So, so before I got married, I had a very straightforward relationship with shoes. I basically had two pairs of shoes which I wore. They were, they were effectively interchangeable. One was a little bit smarter than the others, but I had two pairs of shoes. On getting married, I realized I'd been making a mistake my whole life, and I needed far more pairs of shoes than this. And one pair of shoes I particularly needed was the super smart pair of shoes. This was a, the most expensive pair of shoes, the, you know, the black shiny pair that goes with your suit. Most of the time, it's to be kept wrapped up carefully in a box, hidden away somewhere, although the most expensive, always the least worn pair. And this pair of shoes was not for ordinary use. I wouldn't go around the, the shops to Tesco wearing these super smart pair of shoes. You wouldn't just go for a walk in a muddy field with the super smart pair of shoes. You don't want to traipse them through mud and filth, do you? They're not for the ordinary things of life. They're to be set apart. They're to be different. The shoes were different, set apart from all others for special use. And so when Paul talks about the holy God making Christians holy... He's saying that we are to be different, set apart. We're not to be traipsing our way through the sin and muck of this world. No, we're to be wholly different from the world around us. And of course, that doesn't mean withdraw from the world. That's where my illustration sort of breaks down because the, the shoes get taken away. No, we're not withdrawing. We're actively involved in the world, but in a way that's different, a way that's separate, set apart for God's special purposes. So when Paul talks about holy sex, He's talking about being different to the world around us in the area of sex, set apart for God's special purposes. Now, now, before we get to see how we are to be different in this area, it's worth just acknowledging right from the start that most of us spend most of our time trying not to be different from the world around us. We love trying to fit in. No one wants to be different from their colleagues, their peers, the celebrities they follow on Instagram. We want to fit in. And so the moment the Bible starts talking about holiness, it's always going to make us feel a little uncomfortable. Because God's saying we need to be different. But that's the point. To be holy is to be different. And if you're a Christian, that's what God has called us to be different from the world around us. So how then are we to be holy when it comes to sex? Well, my summary of verses 4 and 5 is that Christians should be under control, not out of control. When it comes to the area of sex, Christians should be under control, 
not out of control when it comes to sex. Let's have a look at those verses, verses 4 and 5 again. Paul writes, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You see, verse 4, we're to control our own body. Verse 5, not in passionate lust. In other words, not just whatever we feel like, go for it. Not in an out-of-control way, but in an under-control way. Control our own bodies. Christians should be under control when it comes to sex, not out of control. Now that poses a bit of a problem for us because the culture that we live in, we're embedded in, just like the the first century Greco-Roman culture, is just out of control when it comes to sex. It's all around us. I'm I'm always struck hearing missionaries who've lived in our country and then gone off to a, a different country and come back, and you ask, what's different about the UK? What do you notice? And the number of missionaries who would say, sex is everywhere. You can't get away from it. And it is, whether it's the the billboards as we walk to the tube, if it's Netflix, best-selling books, newspapers, social media, it's just everywhere, in our faces all the time. Sex is everywhere. I mean, next time you're watching TV, just count the number of adverts that try to sell their products using sex. I mean, at the point where sex is being used to sell toothpaste, you have to start asking whether our culture really is sexually liberated or sexually enslaved. The only rule seems to be when it comes to sex, as long as it's between adults who consent, sex is to be indulged in whenever, wherever we feel like it. Just go for it. Whatever your passion you feel, go for it. But verse 6 tells us that the Bible is realistic about that, where our culture is often not. Just look down at verse 6. It says that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The verse is saying that when you have sex that's out of control, not in line with how God wants it to be, it causes deep harm to people. People end up getting taken advantage of. When it says brother or sister, it's talking about within the church, but it's devastating when people get taken advantage of anywhere, but especially so in the church between Christians. Out of control sex causes deep harm to people. I mean, surely this is one of the good things that the, the Me Too movement exposed, that people get taken advantage of when sex is out of control. People are reduced to just objects that are consumed and then thrown away. I mean, people become really no different to a yogurt. You know, if you're, if you're feeling hungry, you, you go, oh, what do I want to eat? I'll go to the fridge and you open the fridge and you have a look in and there's all the yogurts there and mm, I'll, I'll take this one and you consume it and then whatever's left you throw away. And oh, next time you're feeling a bit hungry and you, oh, I'll go to the fridge and you open the fridge and I'll take this yogurt and mm, I'll consume it and then I'll throw it away. That's how people get treated when sex is out of control. They get consumed and thrown away. Whenever we feel like sex, we just take it, consume it, throw it away. That's how our culture lives. And of course, the people doing the consuming might enjoy it for a while. But the people being consumed and thrown away don't. And the Lord certainly does not approve. Just look at the second half of verse 6. It says this, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Words that hopefully bring some comfort to those who felt the pain of being consumed and thrown away. And also a warning to all of us. That sort of attitude to an out-of-control sex, the Lord does not approve. He says he's going to punish it. Even better, translated, avenge. He will avenge that sort of way that sex happens. The Lord sees all out-of-control sex, the wronging and taking advantage of one another, consuming and throwing away. He sees it and he will avenge it. Maybe in this life, but certainly on Judgment Day. 
But why does he take it so seriously? Is it because the, the Bible is anti-sex? Well, no, not at all. Sex is a good gift that God has given. God invented it. The Bible celebrates it. There's a whole book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, that tells about how wonderful sex is within the right boundaries. But it also says that sex is very powerful. So powerful that in a unique way, it, it, relate, it pictures the relationship between God and his people. And like all powerful things, it needs to be kept under control, otherwise it causes carnage. If you have a, a jumbo jet, it's very powerful, but if it's out of control, it causes carnage. If, if you have a, a nuclear power station, it's very powerful, but if it's out of control, it causes carnage. The Bible says sex is very powerful, and if it's out of control, it will cause carnage. And so sex is not to be seen as an act to be indulged in whenever we feel like it, whatever passion takes us. No, it's to be enjoyed within the context of whole life consent of a marriage commitment where one man and one woman consent to give their whole life to one another, including sexually until death separates them. Not taking and consuming and throwing away one another, but committed self-giving to one another. Every other context is out of bounds in God's eyes. A misuse of the wonderful gift he's given us, a recipe for disaster. That's the holy life that God has called his people to. Christians are to be under control, not out of control, when it comes to sex. Now, you might think that, that being different, being holy, being separate from the, the world around us when it comes to sex sounds like an impossible task. How can I really remain sexually under control? How can I not sleep around? How can I not look at pornography? How can I not join in the sexual banter with my mates? How can I keep my thoughts pure? How can I resist the barrage of temptation all around me? Well, Paul hints at an answer in the warning he gives at the end of verse 8. Just have a look down at verse 8. Paul says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God. In other words, it's very serious. It's not just something we can take and then ignore. The very God who gives you his holy spirit. You see, God doesn't only instruct Christians to live a holy life when it comes to sex, but he also empowers us to do so. He is the God who gives the Holy Spirit. See, when you, when you become a Christian, you don't just trust Jesus to forgive all of your past sins, including sexual ones, and he does. But you also trust that each day his Holy Spirit would empower us to live a way that's different. It's not about trying to muster up the power within ourselves to live this holy, different life. No, God has given us his Holy Spirit that we might live differently. Yes, it takes time. Yes, we won't ever be perfect, but we can expect to make real progress, to have more and more and more progress in this area. The power to be holy in the area of sex comes from the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live that way. So the question then for us is, what does it look like for us to live a holy life in the area of sex? How can we be different? How can we be separate from the world around us? Whatever life stage we're at, whatever mistakes we've made before, whatever temptations are raging right now, what can we do to be different, to be holy from the world around us? So sex isn't out of control, but under control within the boundaries God has given. Paul says Christians are to be different, not out of control, but under control when it comes to sex. That's the first area that we can live to please God more and more by living a life that is under control, not out of control. That brings us on to the second one, which is in verses 9 to 12 which is loving work. 
loving work. So let's have a look at these verses as well. We've seen the area of sex. Now we're going to see the area of work. Let's read the verses again. Verse 9 says this, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. You'll notice in verse 11 that the command is about how we work. It's about minding our own business, working with our hands. But just like in the first half, where there's one word that dominates, which is the word holy, in this second part, there's one word that dominates again, and it's the word love. It's the word love. Just look down at verses 9 and 10. This is the context for Paul's commands about work. It says this, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. So I don't think we're supposed to think of of their love as sort of a, a warm, fuzzy feeling that they felt towards the others in other churches in Macedonia. I think that he's thinking about specific sacrificial acts of Christ-like love. And particularly, I think he has in mind financial aid that they've given to other churches. The context here where love is related to work is one reason. Another reason is a parallel you'll find in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 if you want to look that up. But then in 2 Corinthians, Paul will also write about the Macedonian church and say that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able to. So it seems like this is a church that has has shown its love to others in the surrounding area by giving financially. So I think that's the context for the, the talking about love. The love he has in mind is the way in which this church has financially given to help other churches in the area. Of course, it would be more than that, but I think that's the main thing he has in mind. And in common with the whole tone in the section, verse 10, he's urging them to do so more and more, more and more. He he said, you've made a great start at this, now just keep going, keep giving more and more. So how then is Christian love connected to work? Well, let's have a look at verses 11 to 12. Let's read those again. Paul writes, you wanted to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you to, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. The big message here is, when it comes to loving work, is to be other-centered, not self-centered. To be other-centered, not self-centered. When Paul talks about the, the, um, having the ambition to lead a quiet life, I think that's in, in contrast to what's been happening in the church. You can kind of piece the bits together as you look at the, the second letter. It seems that some in the church are saying, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back very soon, very, very soon. So let's just give up our jobs and let's just wait for Jesus because he's going to come back really, really soon. It seems that some people are saying that. And people are making an uproar about this. Their community is turned on its head because Jesus is coming back. So let's all quit our jobs and just wait for him. I mean, you still see that occasionally today, don't you? I mean, at least once a year, there must be a a news story about some um, 
cult leader or, or other who says Jesus is coming back next week on Thursday and makes this big buzz and hype about it. And you see interviews in the, in the news and people in the community are getting a bit of a tiz about it. And people start quitting their jobs and going living in a bunker waiting for Jesus to come back. And then, of course, Jesus doesn't come back next Thursday and the, the leader does a bit of recalculation. It's always the next week on Thursday and the pattern repeats again and again. It seems like that is happening at the church in Thessalonica. And Paul is trying to avoid this sort of big uproar and buzz and hype and saying, no, no, live a quiet life. Live a quiet life. Mind your own business. Don't cause an uproar by quitting your jobs. Lead a quiet life. Work with your hands. And the outcomes for doing so are related to Christian love, about being other-centered, not self-centered. There are two, two reasons. You'll see them in verse 12. One, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Two, so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. Christians work hard so they can lovingly reach out to others. See, Paul is concerned that the way that we work reflects on our Christian faith. It reflects on how others see us as Christians. The watching world isn't attracted to a community that's lazy, that causes an uproar and quits their jobs or a community that makes people worse employees. I've certainly never met someone who's become a Christian because they saw everyone go and quit their job and live in a bunker waiting for Jesus. But there is something attractive, something compelling about a community where people work hard so that they can lovingly and sacrificially give what they have to help others who are in need. There is something very compelling about that. This has always been what Christians have done. I was reading this week about um, the Emperor Julian of Rome, he was an emperor in 165 AD. And he was getting concerned that lots of people in the Roman Empire were turning to Christianity. But he knew there was a problem, which was that people were attracted to the community because the Christians were the ones caring for everyone. Julian wrote a letter to the, the local pagan high priest, Arsacius. And he wrote this, The impious Galileans, that's the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service. In other words, he, he writes to the, the high priest and says, sort out your religion because all, all the people are becoming Christians because the Christians are caring for everyone. You need to tell your people to start giving more, otherwise they're going to stop following the local religions. This sort of thing leads the, the historian Rodney Stark to say, the key factor in the growth of Christianity was community in a world that had no social services, a world that had many slaves and very poor people. Here was an organization in which people took care of one another, which in a sense provided social services that weren't there for anyone else. And don't forget, all this looking after the poor, caring for one another is only possible because Christians, ordinary Christians day to day are working hard so that they can give and give and give to care for others. They weren't causing an uproar, they were working hard. It's in the day-by-day, week-by-week grind of keeping our heads down and working hard so that we have money to give away and care for other people, that the outside world looking in sees a compelling community and we can reach out to them with the message of Christ. So that's the first, the first way we, we can lovingly reach out to others. The second way in verse 12 says so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Christians work hard so we can lovingly give, not take. See, Paul's ideal is Christians who are able to work should work so that they're not financially dependent on others. He doesn't want us to be a community where we take from one another and people are lazy, not doing anything, and just take. No, he wants us to be a community where people keep their heads down, work hard so that we can give and not be dependent 
on one another. This was uh, illustrated quite wonderfully at an interview we had with some of the, the musicians at a prayer meeting a, a couple of months ago. don't know if you were there and you, you remember it. Freelance musicians who are obviously devastated by the, the current crisis and works hard. It's hard to come by at the moment. It's not laziness that's driving them to not work. It's just they can't. There's no jobs available because of the crisis. But to hear one of the freelance musicians say, it was wonderful that the church community rallied round and offered us financial aid if it was needed. Isn't that a wonderful thing? People who are going through a crisis and actually can't work for a time, being cared for by others in the community. People who for a good reason might be unable to support themselves are offered help by the rest, who are able to give because of the jobs that God has generously provided and they're working hard at them. Paul wants us to be a church where we are other people-centered, not self-centered. Through our work, we can serve others, both by reaching out and by caring for others in our community, not being dependent where possible. Now, of course, I doubt there are many here who are right now tempted to quit their jobs and go sit in a bunker and wait for Jesus to come back. I don't think that's our problem, and that's a good thing. I guess there might be some who are tempted to laziness and Paul would say, no, no, work hard, keep your head down, work hard so that you can care for others. But I guess most likely there are some who are very happy to keep our heads down and work hard, but it's just not motivated by Christian love. It's about how we can climb the career ladder, how we can keep ourselves safe. It's very self-centered, not other-centered. And Paul would say, no, no, we want to be able to reach out to others. We want to be able to care for others, not be self-centered, but other-centered in the way that we work. And just like the, the holiness that we're called to in the area of sex is not a self-generated holiness, so the love that we are called to is not a self-generated love when it comes to work. We see that if we look at verse 9. If we look at verse 9, let's see what that says. This is talking about the Thessalonian church. It says, you have been taught by God to love each other. See, the love that the Thessalonians have, and Paul wants them to have more and more as they work hard to care for others, is a love that they've been taught by God. And if you want to see where God has taught us what it is to love others most, we of course look to Jesus. If there's anyone who didn't come to be self-centered and come to take for himself, it would be Jesus. He left heaven and came to earth and worked hard, very hard, years and years as a carpenter, and then weeks and weeks and weeks of preaching and teaching and healing to care for people. He worked very hard, even going to the cross, that he might obey his father and pay for our sins and bring us eternal life. Jesus worked hard so that he could give us freely. And that sort of love is a love he calls us to as Christians. As we listen to the, the lesson of Jesus and who he is as we trust him, we don't have to work up the love within ourselves, but it is given to us by God. God teaches us it. And so I think Paul would say to us as a church, both when it comes to holy sex and when it comes to loving work, we need to look to God for the strength to live this way more and more and more. Look to the power of his Holy Spirit to, to live out the life of holy sex that he wants us to. And to listen to the, the lesson of Jesus, be taught by Jesus what it is to love, to want to give and give and give, not take, so that we might be able to live this sort of life. Our holy God has called us and empowered us to live differently to the world around us when it comes to sex. Our loving God has called us and empowered us to work hard so we can be generous to one another. And as we see that already at play in our church, we want to give thanks. Give thanks in all the areas we see that already. 
But Paul would say more and more we can please God as we live this way by his power. Let's pray that we might be that sort of church now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are a God who is holy. You are different and you are separate from us. Thank you that you are a God who is incredibly loving, that in Jesus we see your sacrificial love expressed to us. Father, please would your holiness and your love impact the way that we live today as Christians in the ordinary day-to-day things of life. Help us not to withdraw and turn away from the world. But instead, as we seek to live the way that you want to, to please you as our Father, help us to live holy lives and loving lives each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.